everyone. So glad to see you all today. Four years old through fourth grade, you are dismissed to walk to junior church over here. All through the years, history have tried to predict the future. We have people who are trying to predict what gender their child's going to be, like Austin and, and Taylor were just talking about their, their future baby coming. Here are some statements, though, of people who really did think they knew what was going to happen in the future. Uh-oh. We see that just messed up. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> My computer's messing up. So, who can predict that this would happen? Uh-oh, it's gone. Hold on. I'm gonna... No, I did not think I got it. I had to look in the trash and delete it. Okay. All throughout history, people have tried to predict the future, and I could not predict that I almost deleted my sermon. So, oh, what a, and I'm, I can get paid to do this, guys. Yeah. In 1859, Edwin Drake tried to enlist some drillers to help him with this new idea he had, which was to drill for oil. Everybody around him said, drill for oil, drill in the ground. You're crazy. You'll never find oil. The people were wrong. Uh, in 1899, Charles Duell, commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office, said everything that can be invented has already been invented. That was in 1899. So he really thought no new inventions were ever going to happen. In 1927, H.M. Um, Warner of Warner Brothers said this, Why would we ever add sound to movies? Nobody would want to hear actors. Okay, that was his thought. In 1929, Irving uh, Fisher, professor of economics at Yale University, full of really smart people, so we're told. Okay, what happened in 1929? Stock market crash. Here is his statement. Stocks have reached what looks like a permanent high plateau. He predicted the future wrong. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM, in looking at the new invention of the computer, he said, I think that in the world market we could probably sell five computers total. And he was wrong. And then this guy, uh, 1962, a guy said, after hearing a demo, I don't like that group, the Beatles. Guitar music is definitely on its way out. We had two guitars up here, didn't we? So all these people thought they had an idea of what the future was going to be, what it was definitely going to look like. I had an idea of what the future was going to look like, and it was based on Marty McFly. We were supposed to have flying cars and hoverboards by now. And the segue does not count. We don't have it. Predicting the future is impossible. There are people who say they can predict your future just coming to them. And, and I, I always want to say, then why can't you predict the future of who's going to win the lottery? Why can't you go play that way? Why, why did, it doesn't work. You cannot know. So what do we do? Because we know there is a future. How do we handle it? Today we're going to look at David in First uh, Chronicles 22 and how he prepares for the future. Starting in verse 1. And then David said, this will be the location of the temple of the Lord and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. So David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel, and he assigned them to the test of preparing finished stone for the building the temple of God. 
David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors and the gates and for the clamps, and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon had brought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, My son Solomon is still young and inexperienced, and since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. Then David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. My son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God, David told him. But the Lord said to me, you have killed many men in battles and have fought. And since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace, and I will give in peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. His name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a temple to honor my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. We're going through the whole life of David, looking at how he is called a man after God's own heart, and, and we've seen many pitfalls, many struggles, and just downright sins in his life. And so we've seen the, the wrongs, we've seen some of the highlights, the, the beating of Goliath, the, the temple that we're going to see here when he brought the ark, and how those were triumphal things here. Here we see another part of David, he really wanted to build the temple. He really wanted to bring something that could honor God and bring all the people back into a, a right relationship of worshiping and honoring God. And yet David was told. God came to him and said, you are not qualified. You have too much blood on your hands. We need to re recognize that David had a great response to God's statement. He didn't try to justify and argue with God. But God, you know what? I'm a man after God's own heart. I'm the one you have ordained. You should let me. He didn't try to argue that. He didn't get upset. It didn't even say that he took offense. When, when we are told not to do something that we really want to do and we don't do it, our first reaction is to argue and then pout. We learned that back when we were toddlers. And we still do it through our older ages. David didn't pout. He didn't even get angry at God. It doesn't seem that David even gets jealous of what God told him, that his son Solomon would have the honor of building this. Instead, David gets told, your son Solomon is going to do this. And so David accepted God's decision, and then he put into motion his life's actions to make sure David would fulfill what God had called him to do. He was going to be generous and gracious, wholeheartedly support this. David just proclaimed it was God who sovereignly selected Solomon to be David's successor to the throne. And when the second uh, re recorded um, child of David and Bathsheba is born, we see he is called Solomon, which is, can be translated the peaceable one. Shalom in Hebrew is peace, and this is Solomon. It's how kind of you would say it. I don't know Hebrew real well, you know that, but it's very similar. And so he would be the one of peace. 
Scholars estimate that Solomon at this point is around 17 years old. Do we have a 17-year-old here? Come here. He didn't know I was going to do this. So, do you think you would be entrusted well enough to design, to plan, to coordinate, and, and build our whole, the whole next church? He said, yes. You've got to be able to speak to everybody. <laughs> 17-year-old arrogance. I love it. Okay, go away. That backfired. So, what 17-year-old would we put in charge of a huge construction project? Definitely not the processors. They plant sweet corn with my watermelons. No, we want somebody who has experience. We call the 17-year-olds on projects like that gophers. You just go get this. Um, I was told at one work site when I was younger like that uh, to, to go get the smoke sifter and then the board stretcher. So I went looking for what, what the heck is this thing, a board stretcher? <laughs> a dumb guy, that's what I was. And, and all the older guys were looking because <laughs> what happened to them when they were young? They were told the same thing. At, t- at 17, many teenagers today are trying to wow the opposite gender by showing how great they are and get out from under parental authority. That's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, I am not, I am big enough, I can do it my own way, and I want all this other person to see that I do this. And yet, what does David do here? He calls his 17-year-old son, places upon him one of the heaviest responsibilities ever given to a 17-year-old, the building of the temple of God. This is not going to be an easy assignment. Altogether, it's going to take 14 years to accomplish The first seven years are going to be nothing but planning and collecting all the materials for the building. The second seven years are going to be the actual building for this. The exact blueprints and plans were given to David from God, just like the instructions from Moses, or to Moses, to give to the people. Another interesting aspect of the project difficulty was during the building process, they were supposed to build it in complete silence. They were to build the temple without making a sound. How do you hammer without making a hammer sound? You plug your ears? No. Which meant they had to do that stuff off-site and then transport it to the site. It's made it very hard and difficult, but it was purposeful to show that here is going to be holy. You are not going to mar it with some weird sounds. And, and honestly, here's one of the things I kind of think. What have, I've been with several projects, and when you have guys hammering, what always happens? You hit your thumb. And what tends to happen when you hit your thumb? God doesn't want that on his place. There's not going to be bad attitudes. There's not going to be slip of the tongues. This is going to be a place of holiness, of purity, which makes the, this assignment 
all the more harder and strenuous. This is what God asks and demands of Solomon. Um, Starting in verse 11, David says, Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. Earlier he said the Lord my God. Now he's shifting the focus to the Lord your God. May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if if you carefully obey the decrees and the regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. I've worked hard to provide materials for the building of the temple, the uh, building the temple of the Lord. Nearly four thousand tons of gold, forty thousand tons of silver, and so much iron and bronze that it cannot be weighed. I've also gathered timber and stone for the walls. Through, um, though you may need to add more, you have a large number of skilled stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths and silversmiths and workers of bronze and iron. Now begin the work, and may the Lord be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to assist Solomon in this project. The Lord your God is with you, he declared. He has given you peace with the surrounding nations. He has handed them over to me, and they are now subject to the Lord and his people. Now seek the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that you can bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy vessels of God into the temple and build uh, to honor the Lord's name. This speech here that he is saying is a wonderful blessing to Solomon. It's a reminder of what Solomon needs to do. Solomon, David basically told his son this, God will be with you God will give you wisdom and understanding, but you must follow and obey God's commands. Be strong and courageous in God, and don't be afraid. That's really the summary of what what David was telling his son. And look at those. What an encouraging and challenging speech. But beyond these words, David puts his life into action to make preparations for it. He does these um, huge, dug these huge uh, quarries to get this limestone and all the other uh, um, materials needed for this temple. He gets to work to make sure his son can get this done. It's very hard to estimate the value of raw materials because it, it, there is so much. There was so much bronze they couldn't weigh it. Can you imagine that? David had to gather all this stuff, and there, there wasn't even a way to measure it all. A conservative guess and most modest appraisal would put a minimum value of, a, of at least $100 billion in today's estimates. That's how much David did. He accumulated all this and had it on hand, ready for Solomon to take over. But in addition to the physical supplies, David also did something that was very good and influential. David ordered all the, the people of Israel, which included Solomon's other family members, older siblings, to give loyalty and support. I'm the oldest of my siblings. 
And if my mom and dad told me to bow down and give loyalty to my middle or my baby brother, I would have said, it's time to go to the nursing home, Mom, because you're nuts. It's not going to happen. Because I'm the oldest. I'm the right one. I'm the smart and best-looking one. Any other older siblings here who agree? See, Nate, he's up here. They're right here going, amen, preach it. The rest of you, just live with it. It's the truth. Can you imagine being an older sibling of Solomon? Here's this young kid. He's, he's not even a, teen, a full teenager. He's, or he's not even a full adult. He's 17. And he's in charge of this temple, and now dad's making me do everything he wants? It's all because David is preparing for what God had told him. Not hear what we want, what we would think. In First Chronicles 23 through 27, we see David organizing and assigning key people to work as priests, singers, and soldiers. And from all this, we see David literally doing everything he could to prepare a way for Solomon to fulfill this temple. And on top of all that, David tries to instill into Solomon the same same enthusiasm and and ambition that David has for the Lord. That he he loves God so much, he wants to build this temple. And he's pouring all of that into Solomon so that Solomon can do the same thing. We know that David has not been a perfect king. He hasn't been a perfect king at all. He hasn't been a perfect father. He's done some really bad things. He was not a perfect husband. He wasn't even a perfect follower of God. David made more than his share of mistakes, yet in spite of all that, in spite of all those failures, in spite of all the times he stumbled, he kept returning to God. He kept repenting and turning back to God. He never turned, uh, completely turned away from God. He would repent and turn back. And that is one of the key reasons why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because David, through all of his mess ups, still wanted to seek God. Now, David's attempts to inspire and direct Solomon made it an initial impact on Solomon. When God gave an incredible gift offer to Solomon, I'll give you whatever you wanted. Now, if you are going to ask a teenager, I'll give you anything in the world you want. I know right now my son, one of my sons would say, I want a new truck. They take after their dad. And yet this teenager, this man said, give me wisdom so I can rule your people. And God did grant Solomon wisdom and a whole lot more. Solomon did follow through with building the temple, and it, and it did help bring God's people into a, a relationship to give glory and honor to God, um, at least initially. David's zeal for the Lord was passed on to Solomon initially. Unfortunately, later Solomon was not as faithful to the Lord as he was in his early years as king. But this right here, this scene that we just read through with David was a very good thing. One that you would expect to be a Father's Day sermon. But David did hear, what he did hear, even though he did this as a dad, is something that needs to go beyond just fathers. 
This is something I think all of us need, because there's a, there's a real epidemic in the church. And the real epidemic is there are youth leaving the faith. The real epidemic is we have youth who don't know how to read the Bible. I, I'm not saying they don't know how to read. They just don't know how to read the Bible. They don't see its worth. They don't see its value. They don't see that coming to church is important. And the reason this epidemic is real is because we don't have moms and dads who have made it a vital priority in their life. We need to do a whole lot better as parents. We, including myself in this. To be brutally honest, we need to do a whole lot better than we've done in the past. David right here is helping his son, that's true, but ultimately what David is doing is building up to leave a faith legacy, which then means we should ask the question, and I want you to really think about this question when it pops up on the screen, what kind of faith legacy are we leaving our children and our grandchildren? What kind of faith legacy are we leaving? And leave this up here if you would, guys. But what kind of example are we leaving for them to follow? What kind of vision for serving the Lord are we instilling in them? Are we passing on to them the love for the Lord and for the things of the Lord? Are we inspiring them to serve God wholeheartedly? Are we helping them to understand that serving God involves a whole lot more than warming a chair on a Sunday morning? Are we helping them embrace the notion that each one of us is an ambassador, a holy priest, sent out by God to fulfill the mission of reaching the lost? Are we helping each one of them know that they are called to be in some sort of ministry? We've got to do a lot better job. We have teenagers in this family group right here, who on Sunday mornings, they say the right words, but when they go off into school or with their friends, they're using coarse language. They're saying those cuss words. They're showing pictures to other people on their phones. They are acting derogatory to the other gender. They're being rude and calloused. Are we showing them to let them Let me just say something. Kids are going to be dumb. They get that honest, okay? Because we were dumb too. And so we can't, I'm not trying to say we have to raise perfect kids because uh, we're not perfect enough to, to do that. But are we raising them so much so that their conscience is searing them? It's calling to them, saying, don't do this. Or have we taught them there is a duality in life? And what I mean by that is on Sunday morning we act and look like this, but the rest of the week, do whatever you want. But on Sunday, the Lord's Day, we come into the Lord's house. Are we showing them we are the Lord's house? That the Lord's Day is every day. That I am in His presence all the time. What about this one? Are we encouraging them to consider a life of full-time ministry or to go into missionary, to be a missionary to other places? I talked about, this is a true story. I, we were, when we were in youth ministry, we pulled this kid into, our off, into my office and told him, 
We know God is calling you into the ministry. We know this. We've been praying about it, Casey, and I just knew it. Told the boy, and his mouth dropped open, and he was like, I've been praying about that this week. I was so excited. Here's this guy. He is going to go into ministry. He felt the calling. We confirmed it for him, and he was going to do it. And that week, I got a meeting with his dad, who was furious with me. You, why would you endorse my kid to go into this where he won't make enough money to live on? He had a good idea. He had a good track going into architect or, um, engineering. And you just made him blow it all for this idea of ministry. Do we do a good job of encouraging kids to go into ministry? I've seen kids in here who I desperately think should be in ministry when they grow up. I did a good job of telling them that. Encouraging them to go into mission. Are we instilling in them the hope of someday being a, a Sunday school teacher or an elder or a deacon or the wife of an elder? Are we helping them to understand if they devote themselves complete, completely to the Lord, then God will lead and bless their lives? Are we focusing everything onto these kids, these next generation, whether they're our kids or not, and saying, look to God. I'll prepare everything around you if you would just look to God. King David was all about passing on this zeal for the Lord to Solomon. He was all about inspiring Solomon to build the sanctuary for the God. Can't we do the same thing? We are called not to build a sanctuary. Did you know that? We're, you, know, we're, we, you know we're all talking about building a new um, addition to the church. We are not going to build a new sanctuary. I just want you to know that. Because we are not called to build a sanctuary. Look what it says, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple or sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are the sanctuary. We are not called to build a sanctuary, but to be the sanctuary. The sanctuary means a holy place set apart for the worship and honor and service of God. This room here is an auditorium. We are the sanctuary. And we need to instill that not just in our own minds, but into the youth and say wherever you go, whether it's school, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's at Walmart, I don't care. Even if you're alone in the car, you are the sanctuary of God. We sing this great song that speaks this. Oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving. I'll be a, what kind of sanctuary? A living sanctuary for you. We live in such a secular culture and our kids are inundated with so much worldly things. The reality is that everything around us is temporary. All the sports, all the business, all the entertainment, the, the popularity, the social gatherings, every bit of it one day will be gone. Society is pushing all of us to invest into these different things, to be in all the sports. You've got to be in all the sports and collect all those things and get the trophies so you can get the scholarships because you've got to have all this, otherwise your life's not going to mean anything. Yes, they do sports, but sports don't last. Businesses 
come and go. Entertainment fades. Popularity vanishes like the wind. All of them are temporary. The only things that last, the only things that continue are the things of God. And God, His kingdom, and His people are what's going to last for eternity. So why have we not pushed that more and led that more to our youth around us? We might want our kids to have a better home, cars, education, and jobs than we have, because we think that might give them a better life. But how wrong can that be? about wanting them to know God more. Even praying, God, strip my son, my daughter of worldly wealth so they learn to depend on you. Keep my kids dependent on you for their strength and their patience. Don't let them be successful in these things so they turn their eyes away from you, oh God. But what do we usually pray? Help them win this award. Help me get this scholarship. Help them do better in these things. Help them be noticed for these. I think we need to do a better job because of this epidemic. How can we inspire kids to have real faith in God? That's that's the question here. And here's the first thing. We start with ourselves. You cannot point your children to do something or the kids around you that you are not already doing. Our lives must first be dedicated to God. We must allow the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins, to purify us from all that keeps us having those godly desires and godly involvement. We must become that sanctuary, that living sanctuary for God and allow everything in our lives to point to Him. And then we let our kids, all the people around us, see that that is evident. Let our kids see God's love, His grace, and His holiness come shining through us. We let them see that God lives in us. How many times do we let our kids see us reading the Bible on more than just a Sunday morning? They need to see us walking with God as we face victories and and seeking God in more than just defeats. They need to see us dedicating our time, our efforts, our finances to the spiritual things of God. And as we do these things, then we are setting an example for the children and the generations to follow. It has got to start with us. And I'm not talking only people who have kids in their homes, real quick. This, do you know when you quit being a parent? When you die, that's right. You will always be a parent. Now, how your parent will change from infants, toddlers, teenagers to they're out of the house. Your parenting will change, but you never stop being a parent. My mom still parents me. I just saw her this last week, and guess what? She parented me. She's my mom. That's what she's going to do forever. And so whether the kids are in the home or not, whether you have kids or not, it doesn't matter. There are kids and youth around you that you have influenced, and it starts with us if we want to direct them to God. 1961, how many of you remember that? <laughs> You're up, you don't remember that. You read about that. You don't even remember 1970. You weren't even alive at 81. What are you talking about? Were you born after 01? <laughs> yeah, put your hand down. 1961, John F. Kennedy said these words in an inaugural address. I've seen the footage. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friends and foe alike 
that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans, born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Let every nation know whether it... Don't put that up yet. I'm not there yet. They were reading it. I saw it. And it didn't match what I was saying, did it? Forget that. i got to start all over. No, let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support friend, and oppose any foe to assure the survival and success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. That inaugural address is amazing. And it stirs. And the people who saw it and knew it, it's like it, it just builds in you, and you're like, yes, I want that. I like the spirit that Kennedy captured in those words, the, the spirit of commitment and, and self-sacrifice. And I'm hoping all of us can have that, not towards America, but towards God, the seal of the things of God. And I'm hoping we can instill that, not just in ourselves, but to those around us. So I want to reword his statements. This will be up on the screen. These are my words, but maybe it'll be something we can declare. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Christians who live in our secular society. Let it be known that we are proud of our Lord Jesus and His Word, His body, the church. Let every person know that we will pay any price, bear any burden, and meet any hardship, support any friend, and oppose any foe to assure the survival and success of the church. This much we pledge and more. It is time we make a pledge. We stand up and say, it is for God's glory, and I will die trying to make sure it happens. This is what the church needs to be. Not a place we come in and just sit and twiddle our thumbs and look at our clocks, but a time where we come and get our marching orders for the week. A time where we get fueled up and fired up and we look at the kids and we say, let me take you for a ride because we're going against the enemy this week. It is time that it starts with us. I'm tired of seeing kids leave. I'm tired of seeing the youth fall away. I've seen it every year at church camp. There's a kid, he, he came forward, he wanted to go into ministry his last year at, at, at Lake James. And I started encouraging, I was sending him emails. We were talking in Messenger and all that stuff, and then he dropped out because he got a good-paying job working part-time, then he moved into full-time, and, well, I don't need to be in ministry to serve God. You're right, you don't, but God calls you. And then he started accepting other worldly things that are directly against the Bible. But I just want to love, like Jesus, what Jesus did love, but he also said, stop sinning. Real love doesn't say, keep doing what makes you feel good. Real love says, I know what you like, but God's way is better. And he left it all. And I see this every year. Every year at church camp. I see it here. 
and every church. Is that statement, can you back up one screen? Is this statement something we are willing to embrace and embody so that our kids can one day pick up the mantle that we can actually say, the torch of my faith has been passed? Or is it something we just and I hope it happens? This a powerful story for many years ago of a brave 14-year-old boy, true story, who stood at a corner watching someone being burned at the stake because of their religious belief in Smithfield, England. As the fire was about to be lit, a man who knew this boy's family and their strong convictions, he knew he was connected. This boy was connected to the person who was at the stake. He said, what are you doing here? And the boy said this, I'm learning the way. He was watching his fellow believers be burned for their belief in Jesus. And he says, I am learning to make sure I follow through the same way. It starts with us. Secondly, we have to get rid of religion and get into real relationship with Jesus. We've got to get out of religion. Religion says you've got to attend church. You have to do this. You have to do that. Religion says you have to dress up. You have to say these things. You have to go in this order. Religion says you have to have a bulletin. Religion says all these things. Religion has obligations to follow or else. Religion is their only way that way. If you, if, uh, it is doing it so you can earn your eternity. That's what religion is. A relationship is two-way. God reaching down, living in and through us as we choose to reach up to Him. It's not one way. What kind of religious ways are our kids learning from us? Do we really answer that? Are we living a life of fake faith? I have done that in front of my kids. I, I know I have. Then I've done it. This is how you act on Sunday morning. This is how you act in front of church people. But finally, I'm at home. I feel free, and I can, I can be a little more disrespectful because I, I don't want them to quit giving. Do we do that? What kind of religious ways, fake faith, are we only going to church because we have to? Or skipping church because it doesn't really matter if you attend. I can go to church anywhere I'm at. Do we allow words and phrases out of our mouths that don't honor God? Do we act in ways that contradict what the Bible says? We've got to get rid of religion and get back into relationship. If you're married, you know that your spouse does not want a religious um, coupling where you come and tell them you love them because you have to. All right, so I've got to say it five times today. I'll do it at 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Because then you don't mean it. I gotta make sure I pull out the chair for and push it back in when she goes sit down. I gotta open the door. I gotta make sure I make a sandwich. That's it's not a relationship. You want somebody who is devoted to you, who is loving and honoring. You gotta get rid of religion and get into right relationship with God. The third thing we need to do to inspire kids to have real faith in God. To put our own faith into practice. Uh, these three things, we have to act, 
out our faith, not just say the words. It's a great thing to come into church and hear a great message. I was waiting for a plot. Okay. Um, to be moved by the songs, to sing that we sing. That is a great thing. But this is not living out your faith. This is passive. You need to be active, which means it starts when you leave. It starts in your head that you're going to make a commitment that this much I pledge and more, and then you go do it. Our Christian lives are best lived out there, showing the whole world, not hold up in here where it's safe and easy. We need to put into practice the faith, our faith, and what it proclaims. That means how we spend our money. That means how much we give of our money to, to church and missions. we got a good friend up here, um, Pansok up here. He, he can't hear me. He's, deaf. He's in, uh, from Thailand, one of the missionaries there. They need Jesus, too. He, he's here. He read my sermon in Thai, and he got it read quicker than I could preach it. But are we sitting here trying to help people like that? You know what? They need money. I don't need Swiss rolls. I don't need bacon. I want bacon, but I don't need bacon. I need more people to know Jesus. And so how I spend my money and what I spend my money on says a whole lot more about my faith, my relationship with God. That also means what type of entertainment we allow in our homes and in our lives. It means choosing what places we avoid as families. Living at our faith means we stand and make a proclamation. We pledge this and more. Joshua made this pledge in 14 and 15 of chapter 24. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Uh, your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you are a Christian, these verses should resonate within your mind and in your heart. These verses should be an anthem. Choose to serve God with all faithfulness. Throw away the false gods of our ancestors. Throw away the false gods of our society, of our culture, and serve God. If living out your faith in a real relationship with Jesus seems too hard, too old-fashioned, or too restrictive, then choose today who you're going to serve. Because whether you like it or not, you will serve something in this life. As for me and my family, I'm going to tell you right now, we serve God. That's it. We serve God. Do you want to be like that? Don't you want to have a real relationship where you can proclaim? One of my favorite memories of our daughter, and she was loud and outspoken. I don't know where she gets it. And we would go when we lived at the college to Kroger's and go grocery shopping. And in the freezer aisle, she was singing a Newsboys song, which that's a Christian band. And the song is called, They Don't Serve Breakfast in Hell. She's singing this out loud. And people are looking. And then we get up to the counter this one time and we're ringing stuff up. And my little, I think she was three or four, she goes, do you know Jesus? Unashamedly asked if this cashier knew Jesus. 
And I'm sitting there going, what? Why, why can't I do that? I love that story, but here's where the pain is. She doesn't know him anymore. My daughter left Jesus. She left the relationship. All this stuff I'm saying, I'm telling you, is very true. And our kids can choose their own way. They can choose their own way. That's for me and my household. No matter the cost, I'm going to serve God. I want my daughter back in my home. I want her back in my faith family. And here's the hardest part, and I should have prepared my wife, I'm sorry. No matter what, whether she comes back or not, I'm going to serve God. Because he's more important. We have people who are praying for her. It hurts. It hurts every time. We need people to prepare so we don't keep having kids leave. We need people leaving the church to go spread the message, not leaving the church to go sit in some other lifestyle. And that starts with you and me. We're not going to be 100% um, productive in it. Even Jesus wasn't. Judas left. Peter was a coward. But he didn't stop. We need people to prepare the way for the next generation. David did it in preparing Solomon so he could build the temple. I want to build the church. Not a building. I want to build the church here at St. Joe so that we are a we are a force that Satan is scared of. I want to see the church build up so much that when we start moving, the demons flee in terror. I want to see the church stand up and face this culture and say, I'm going to love you no matter what, but I will not move from the rock of the salvation which is Jesus. We need a church that's going to stand up to this culture no matter what. And it starts today. It starts right now. Usually at this time we have the praise team come up and start this, but we need to do something different. Can you back up one slide? Okay, one more slide. If you're willing to take the stand to proclaim this, as for me and my family. As for me and all the ones that I have, not control, but direction over. As for me and my family, we will choose to serve the Lord. We're going to do something really bold. And I don't want this to feel forced. It, it, it needs to be really authentic because if you do not want to do this yet, that is perfectly fine. This is not a judgment. But for those who are ready to make this and to fully live it, I want to ask you, will you stand right now? And now here's going to be the harder part. <laughs> that was very moving, by the way. Um, will you pray with your family right now? 
and fathers, men, we need to hear you say this. And we, I know the kids are over there, the younger kids are over there, and so I want to challenge you, do this intentionally, because doing it in church is one thing, but to do it in home. To say, kids, we're going to change some things. And do this. Pray over them when you get home. Every day, pray over them. So will you stand right now, as you just did, pray over your family. Join hands with your family right now. And pray with someone with you. Will you do that right now? Let's all close in prayer. God, um, we know not everyone has kids in their home right now. But we know that you have placed us here where there are plenty of youth, where there are plenty of people that we can share love, share our faith with. God, we know that... I do thank you for this church. I thank you for what it's meant to me and my family. I thank you for the, the movement and the pouring out of your spirit that we've seen you do in this faith family here. But God, we do need to repent because we haven't done it all right. There were victories in our past and we know there are more victories coming, but we, we have lost some people. And we're sorry. Help us to gain them back for your kingdom. Help us to look out at the rest of this world around us and know that the, the people are not our enemy, but that Satan's tactics are. Help us to love them like you did. Help us to serve them as you do. Help us to be your church. God, help us to prepare a way so that we can look back and we can see the youth that are here now thriving in their faith, leading in the churches that you've called them to, and building a better church for your glory. God, we thank you for that. Forgive us of failing and stir us to do it even more. And as we come to you right now with this last song, we ask that this not just be a song, but this be a true prayer from our hearts to you as we sing and pray. Amen. Amen.